All right. Good morning again. Uh, thank you for bearing with us this morning. We pray that it has been a blessing to you so far. and We're continuing our time in worship uh, through the proclamation of God's word and our response to it in our lives. So we're continuing our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, just walking uh, step by step through that book. And this morning, as we start our time, I'll offer you this quote. Classically, there are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence. That is religious meaning apart from God as revealed through the cross of Jesus. Three ways. Through the ecstasy of alcohol and drugs, through the ecstasy of recreational sex, through the ecstasy of crowds. Church leaders frequently warn against the drugs and the sex, but at least in America, almost never against the crowds. That's a quote from Eugene Peterson's memoir on being a pastor. Ours is a moment of movements and crowds. A moment of movements and crowds. We human beings receive a rush of transcendence through being a part of a crowd. There's a release of pent-up energy, a momentum, a sense of belonging, boldness, vindication, and righteousness by joining a crowd. The problem, though, is that crowds eventually dissipate. And subsequently, crowds disappoint. The buzz is temporary. The leaders fade. The movements fail to make good on their promises, which essentially is to bring heaven to earth. Ours is not the only age of crowds to succumb to this idol. After the introduction to his letter, the Apostle Paul dove into the issues belaying the Corinthians in uh, the Corinthian church. The first big issue he addressed was divisions within the church over loyalty to different leaders and teachers. Paul learned that there were factions of crowds within the Corinthian church. And it got to the point, these factions of quarreling, as we see in chapter 1, verse 12. Quarreling, that word literally means hot dispute. I don't know if you've ever witnessed or been a part of a very contentious argument that got to the point of a hot dispute. This is where the Corinthians were. These Christians in this ancient metropolis got lost in wrong priorities, in wrong values, in wrong foundations, and they needed help. They needed redirection. They needed the gospel again, and so do we this morning. So if you haven't turned there, if you have a Bible of your own, or you can look, it's printed in your bulletin at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17, and you can follow along as I read. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, 
but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the reading of God's word. Paul closes introduction to the church in Corinth by thanking God for his grace to bring the Corinthians into fellowship with his son. That's the end of verse 9. And now he transitions from that point to really notice how that fellowship is broken in a lot of ways because of the divisions in the Corinthian church. You see, Paul had the guts and he had the love to tell the Christians in Corinth that they were in trouble. He had the guts and the love to do that. And here's the the main message he conveys to them, the main point of this passage or takeaway from it. That you can trace every problem in the church, including this one in Corinth, you can trace every problem in the church to forgetting the centrality of the cross of Christ. Forgetting the centrality of the cross of Christ. So we'll begin in verse 10, which is Paul's way of showing the end of the movie at the beginning of the movie and then showing all how we get to that final scene. How we get to that final scene is really all of chapters 1 to 4, but the end of the movie here, where they should be, is in chapter 1, verse 10. And where they should be, Paul says, is a place of unity and harmony. Just break down briefly what's going on in verse 10. We can sense in this verse the standpoint that Paul is writing from, his tone in this verse. Now, later on in this book, very shortly, Paul's going to take on a firmer tone with the Corinthians because they were a bunch of knuckleheads in Corinth. But as he's already established at the beginning of his book, at his letter, his tone is one of love. His tone is a humble one. His tone even is a reverent one. And we can see that in chapter 1, verse 10 as well. And I think it's a reminder, just as a brief sidebar, that as much as it matters what we say, you know this, it also matters how we say it. Paul was mindful of that as well. Now in verse 10, the word appeal, you see that there, it can also be translated as exhort, some translations might have that, is a term that one uses among friends. So this is a loving tone. He also appeals to them as brothers, which in this context, this is a gender neutral term, it could be brothers and sisters. So again, a loving tone, appealing to them as brothers, and he appeals to them as brothers and sisters based on the name of our Lord Jesus, not based on himself, based on Christ. So here's the tone, if we could rephrase it in our own words, Paul might be saying, guys, we are a family that bears the name of our Lord Jesus. We are a family that bears the name of our Lord Jesus in all of our lives, including our life together as a church. We bear that name, and we have the opportunity either to honor and commend that name or to tarnish that name based on how we live. Live like you bear the name of Christ. That's what the name Christian means. It means little Christ. You see, Paul is an apostle. We think of his tone here, loving, humble, reverent. Paul's an apostle. Talked about that last week. This is a select group of individuals, people who witnessed, I witnessed the risen Jesus. Paul wrote half of the New Testament. Just said from a secular standpoint, this is the best-selling book of all time. And God used Paul 
to bring the gospel to nearly all of the known world at his time period in the mid-first century. That's to say, if there was anybody who had the clout to bludgeon his congregants into submitting to him, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet, Paul is like his Savior, Jesus, who is gentle and lowly. He comes to them as their brother because he knows he is not their Lord. Verse 10 shows us Paul's tone, but then we get into the actual content of his appeal. You see here, he wants all of them to agree, for there to be no divisions among them, that they be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Just reading this, you can see that this is basically one charge stated in several different ways. So when he tells them to agree, it means literally to say the same thing. When you are in a divided state, everybody is saying different things. When you are in a united state, you are on the same page. That word divisions in this, wor- in this verse is where we get the word schism, and it carries the idea closer to that of rivalries. I'm sure you know as well as I do that a family cannot function very well if there are heated and ongoing rivalries within it. And that word also, when he appeals to them to be united, that means to put in order or proper condition. This verb here is used in the context of surgery, used in the context of setting a bone in place. So here is Paul saying, just like you need to set bones in place, so this, is, this broken fellowship needs to be set in place again. What was Paul accomplishing here? What's Paul trying to say? I don't know if you've gotten to a point with a family member or a spouse where there's been a disagreement that's lasted so long that you just say, hey, listen, we need to sit down and we need to work this out. We need to address the issue, stop skirting it, talk it out. That's essentially what Paul is telling the Corinthians to do here. He says, y'all, you cannot exist as a family in this contentious state. Work it out. And it takes work to do this because everybody in the church still deals with our sinful, selfish hearts. It takes work to work it out. It takes work to maintain unity. That's why Paul says, we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, that we should be eager to maintain unity in the spirit and the bonds of peace. It doesn't just happen. It has to be maintained. Ongoing work. I want to say this. At this point, if you're listening to this, and the topic of maintaining church unity seems like, well, it's, I don't see what the big deal is. I come to church, they're pretty, everybody's nice, you know, really no problems. If the topic of church unity seems like an easy one, I might risk saying that it might be because you're on the fringe of church fellowship. If the topic of church unity seems like an easy topic, You might not really need to strive to maintain unity and agreement when you have a casual approach to church fellowship. You might not need to strive to do that. See, the need for Paul to appeal to agreement implies a church fellowship of intertwined lives, not of casual interactions. Now listen, I know I want to be sensitive, and I know this this has complications and layers. I know people we meet through church can do damage and have done damage to us. But the beautiful, God-glorifying purpose for the church 
is a depth of unity that comes when we invest in the people who are together with us in the same local church. A depth of unity when we invest, not just when we skim. Now, instead of opting for doing this hard and messy and humbling work of striving toward unity, working it out, a lot of people opt to stay on the fringe of church fellowship so that they could be near the exit when things get tough or when something happens that they don't like. Y'all, the church isn't a country club. The church is not a country club where you come for benefits to consume goods and services. The church is a family. And we try to make that commitment to a family clear at the outset of becoming a part of Old Oak Bible Church as a member. That's just what we call it. Now I know, again, a lot of us in this room, myself included, have been hurt by people at church. So all the more it takes entrusting ourselves to the Lord enough to have staying power with a group of people who are redeemed sinners just like you and me. Now that we have unity, that we have agreement, that we have staying power, and that we strive toward it, Paul's point in verse 10, that's not to say that there can never be disagreement in a church. That's not to say that you can never even leave a church. No, there are good and legitimate reasons to do that. I think of the Apostle Paul, he experienced some of those reasons as well. You just read the book of Acts. Paul left certain churches to start new ones or to go help existing ones. That's a good reason to leave a church. Paul even had disputes with other Christians. His partner in ministry, his good friend, Barnabas, him and Paul had a disagreement, had a falling out. Think of the Apostle Peter misrepresented the gospel, and Paul got in his face. Think of the church in Galatia. Paul told them, hey, even if I preach a different gospel, don't have it. Kick me out. There are good and legitimate reasons to disagree, to divide. But I think it's worth just looking at verse 10. We get opportunities to to apply the word in deep ways as we walk through it. Just, Just kind of briefly, If there's an issue that comes up with you as a part of Old Oak Bible Church, if there's an issue that comes up, somebody here or with the church in general, especially an issue that would get you to the point to consider leaving, if that happens, here's some counsel. Here's some measures you should take. Taking this from Mark Dever's book, What is a Healthy Church?, which we have available if you would like a copy, uh, limited supply available. Some counsel if there is an issue that would make you consider leaving a church. Measures you should take. First measure, obvious but important, you should pray. Second measure, you should talk to your pastors. Let your current pastor know about your thinking before you move to another church or even relocate. Us pastors, me, Bill Barbie, Don Lucas, Dean Velasco, doors, phone numbers are open. Reach out to us. That's what we're here for. Third measure you should take if you are considering leaving Old Oak is to weigh your motives. Is your desire to leave because of sinful personal conflict or disappointment? If it's because of doctrinal reasons, are those doctrinal issues significant? Fourth measure you should take is to do everything within your power to reconcile any broken relationships. 
Fifth measure you should take is to be sure to consider all the evidences of grace, of how God has worked at Old Oak, that you can see, that you can spot, that you can celebrate. And if you have a hard time seeing these things, I think you should examine yourself again and look one more time. Finally, before you leave, if an issue would come that would make you consider leaving, you should be humble. Recognize that you don't have all the facts. Assess people and circumstances charitably. Give the benefit of the doubt. And if you do decide to go, even after all of that, don't divide the body. Take the utmost care not to sow discontent even among your closest friends. Remember, you don't want to hinder the growth of grace in this church. Please deny any desire to gossip. Sometimes this is referred to as venting or saying how you feel. And finally, if you decide to go, please pray and bless the congregation and its leadership. Look for ways to do this practically. And if there has been hurt, ask God's help to forgive as you've been forgiven. Just a little sidebar. I thought it was worth sharing some a bit. This is a topic we might avoid, but we should address. So what Paul's saying here, verse 10, this is the longest of the points. You should be at a place, the place you should be, is a place of unity and church family. This takes having a foundational desire to be on the same page. It takes establishing what you agree to, to believe and how you agree to live with one another. The same mind, the same judgment, he says. The way we've done this is through our statement of faith and our church covenant. Establishing what we agree that we believe, how we agree to live together. Having those foundations in place, eager to maintain together, eager to work it out. Establishing what we agree upon. Having that foundation in place, now you can work. Now you can strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. And that takes work. It takes striving. It takes more than one conversation. It takes prayer, humility, discernment, and knowing when it is okay to agree to disagree. It takes love that prefers the other and is willing to set aside its own preferences. It takes forgiveness, forbearance, repentance. Strive for unity. Brothers and sisters, we need you if we are going to live out 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. So we ask you to ask the Lord for strength, faith, and love to be a meaningful and faithful part of it. But as Paul continues, verses 11 and 12, he makes it clear that where they should be is not where they are. How much of that is the Christian life? Where they should be is not where they are. Paul says he's gotten a report from Chloe's people. Chloe's people has disclosed to him that these disputes and factions are taking place in Corinth. Paul does not disclose the content of that report or many details about Chloe herself. It appears his greatest concern is to address what's going on in the church at Corinth. And what's going on is that instead of being united as a church family, they were divided over loyalties to different leaders. Paul spells out these divided loyalties in verses 11 and 12. There's the Paul group you see there. I follow Paul. It's likely led by those who Paul baptized, which he's going to talk about in a couple of verses. Probably not a large number, 
But those who Paul baptized, we learn from Acts chapter 18, were influential individuals in the community. These are probably those who defended Paul when the rest of the Corinthian church attacked his character. This is the Paul group. There's the Apollos group. We know from Acts 18 that Apollos was a Jewish Christian from the city of Alexandria in Egypt. He was eloquent, he was capable, teaching the truth, persuading others of the gospel. Paul's companions, Prisca and Aquila, discipled Apollos, and Apollos ministered in the city of Corinth after Paul had left. This is the Apollos group. And then he says there's the Cephas group. I follow Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. This is the Apostle Peter. Peter's going to come up later on in this letter. It appears that the Corinthians knew who Peter was. And then finally, there is the Christ group, which seems strange. I follow Christ because we say, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Why would Paul lump this group in with the others? It's likely that Paul closes with this statement to stay in effect that they all follow human leaders, but he follows Christ, which reminds them that their sort of partisan quarreling is beneath them as Christians. This is where they were. Rivalries over loyalty to different leaders. We should ask a couple of questions in light of where they were. First is just kind of digging deeper under the issue why do the Christians in Corinth align with certain leaders over and against others? What explains these divisions? Notice, did you notice in verses 11 and 12 that Paul doesn't delve into doctrinal differences between these groups? That is, it's not that these groups teach different teachings. Later on in this book even, Paul regards both Apollos and Peter as faithful co-laborers in the gospel. So what caused this divided loyalty to one leader versus another? Well, we get a hint of it in verse 17 and even in the next section of this chapter. What caused these divisions was because certain leaders were more eloquent than other leaders. Who's the most flashy preacher? Who's the most gifted speaker? Who can do the most for us? That's who we're going to hitch our wagon to. This was the cause of those divisions. And yes, friends, if you think that that sounds ridiculous, you agree with Paul. He's going to say as much very soon. Paul's going to explain why their party spirit was ridiculous. But before we get to that, we should ask, what fueled this party spirit? What fueled these factions? What stirred the pot of these disputes? I think there's one word that should stick out to, the, to us from these verses, verses 11 and 12. One word especially. It's that word, I. I. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. It's hard to be a group. It's hard to be a family. It is hard to be a church. When everyone only talks about I, instead of we and us. When you filter everything through the lens of how it makes you look, how it fits your preferences, how it advances your individual cause, you are being mindful of yourself before and to the exclusion of other people. And when other people get in your way, that's when quarreling happens. 
Now, there are some individuals in some churches who avoid robust teaching because they say that doctrine divides. Now, we don't have time to address that fully, but just here in 1 Corinthians, it turns out that division is possible even without doctrinal differences. Believe it or not. Division is possible even without doctrinal differences. And friend, I would wager that is the majority of, of disputes within churches. Doctrine was not the root of divisions in Corinth. People were. It was people caught up in struggles for power, prestige, and personal interests who did not have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ, the one who regards others ahead of himself to the point of setting aside his eternal glory, taking on humanity and dying for people who sinned against him. This is where they were. Where they were is not where they should be. You remember when we went out to restaurants? (laughs) Wild times, right? Maybe some of you have gone recently. Even as restaurants have reopened, there are still those, and myself included among that number, who have a little bit of an issue with higher-end restaurants. Not all of them, mind you. But at higher-end restaurants, you have to wait longer to get a table. You have to pay more for your meal. And the cherry on top, you get less in your meal, too. Does this seem off to anyone else besides me? You know, higher-end restaurants, they have the ambiance, the atmosphere, the presentation. And those are all fine, but they mean nothing if the actual food isn't good. Now, restaurants can lean into ambiance and atmosphere and presentation so much that they sacrifice the quality of their food. And at times, they lean into ambiance and atmosphere and presentation in order to compensate for their low-quality food. Like restaurants that have stopped investing in the quality of their food, so Christians in Corinth were caught up in distractions that shifted their priorities, shifted their values, shifted their foundations. They valued presentation more than substance. They valued the messenger more than the message. Is this not the state of the church in the United States? Is this not the state of our politics? My goodness. Verses 13 to 16, Paul explains why their divided rivalries over leaders was an issue. In verse 13, he asks three rhetorical questions. You can see those, boom, 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 right off the bat. First question, he reminds them of the true basis of their unity. She also pointed us back in verse 2. The true basis of their unity and the true head of the church is Christ. And there is only one Jesus, not multiple. Jesus has one body, not multiple. So for one part of the body to rise up and say that it's better than another part would communicate that some who Christ saved are more valuable than others who Christ saved. Paul will talk about that more later on in the book. Second question he asks in verse 13, Paul reminds them that centering their faith and their loyalty on a human leader and teacher, even Paul himself, was foolish. No human leader 
died for them. No human leader won their salvation. Only Jesus did that. And to ride the coattails of a human leader means that we have forgotten that we need more than just eloquent words. We need the crucified Savior. Third question he asks in verse 13. He reminds them that what mattered more than who taught them or who baptized them was who saved them and who they believe in. When they were baptized, the Christians in Corinth, they did not proclaim, I believe in this teacher. They proclaimed, as I hope you did as well, that your baptism, I believe in Jesus. That's who we identify with in baptism, with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Now, this in other places in the Bible will tell us to honor and listen to our leaders in a local church, but we must bear in mind the church leaders are not our ultimate authority. Church leaders are not our Lord and Savior. As Paul will say later in this letter, he is simply a servant. Even here, verses 14 to 16, Paul riffs on who he baptized. It's kind of comical, almost, just him catching his memory. The overall point of verses 14 to 16, though, is that he deliberately avoided giving himself a place of prominence in the Corinthian church. He deliberately avoided making everything in that church dependent on him. So sure, he baptized some individuals, even some individuals who had some large influence, but Paul still limited the amount of people he baptized because he did not want to distract from the centrality of Christ. Didn't want to distract from that. He was sensitive that because of his stature, he could very easily toss his weight around. And it could cause those in the church in Corinth to think that the church revolves around Paul, not around Jesus. We can draw application here, can't we? We can draw application both for church leaders and for the church as a whole. For church leaders, church leaders need to know especially as we exist in a celebrity culture that permeates into Christian circles. Church leaders need to know that we do not exist to build a platform for ourselves. We do not exist to amass influence and followers and book sales. We do not exist to build a brand. Simply put, church leaders, their mantra should be, it is not about me, it is about Jesus. Him we proclaim, Colossians 1, 28. And that Jesus would die for me is already amazing enough. And that he would give me a position to care for any number of his flock that he bled and died for is a deep privilege and grace that this sinner does not deserve. Now, instead of holding on to authority with a clenched fist, church leaders, especially lead and senior pastors, should do what they can to give authority away. Give it away. Not to build a church on a single personality. Not to be the only one who teaches and preaches. Not to be the only one who can make ministry happen. Y'all, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. That every believer has a spirit. That every believer has access to God the Father. That every believer has gifts. I rejoice when I hear church members fellowshipping, serving, and reaching out without my initiative or involvement. It's not just because that makes my, that I'm lazy. 
It's because it shows me it's good for me. It reminds me God's kingdom is just fine without me. It reminds me my job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, not to do the work of the ministry entirely myself. So for churches as a whole, just from verses 13 to 16, listen, we should love and listen and care for our pastors, but we should also know that our pastors are liable and capable of pride. And I will tell you this, if there's a takeaway from verses 14 to 16, do not boast that Steve Barbie is your pastor. Boast that Jesus Christ is your Savior. So here's the flow of thought so far in this passage. 1 Corinthians 10, verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 17. Paul began with where he wants them to be. Place of church unity as a church family. He tells them that because that is not where they are. They are in a divided state. Factions riding the coattails of certain leaders. And he explains that this state that they are in is an issue. And it is altogether ridiculous. And he closes this paragraph in verse 17 by reorienting them, setting their values in a proper place, showing them the more excellent way. So look at verse 17 again. Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, what's Paul saying here? Just even at the beginning, is Paul against baptism? But it seems like it at first blush, doesn't it? Like, he did not send me to baptize. Isn't part of Jesus' great commission to the church to go out into the world, to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? So what gives with this statement here? Well, Paul's not against baptism. Just read the verse before. He did baptize people. He's telling the people in Corinth to understand baptism properly. You see, the Corinthians fixated on who the person was who baptized them. But that wasn't the point at all. The point of baptism is that it reflects a reality that's already in place. That a person has believed the gospel. And that faith in the gospel, as we read earlier in Romans 10, Paul understood that faith in the gospel comes by hearing it. By hearing. Faith comes by hearing. So Paul's mission was to preach the gospel, and through that preached word, God would give faith in the gospel. The gospel. That's what he says here. Christ sent me to preach the gospel. That is good news, the main message of Christianity. And the centerpiece of this gospel is Christ crucified, the cross of Christ, how God reconciles sinners to himself, saves them from his wrath, forgiving their sin against him through the Son of God's life, death, and resurrection in their place. This is the glorious message that Paul gave his life to. This is the message he proclaimed. This is the message through which God has given us life. And this is the message that we appeal to you to believe if you have not believed it. And Paul adds a qualification at the last part of verse 17. He says that Christ called him to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This speaks directly against the Corinthians' mindset and values, doesn't it? You know, the Corinthians' factions and their loyalty to different leaders based on their rhetorical skill, how well they could speak, that mindset communicated that they believed that what makes the difference in the end 
is how well we communicate the message, not the message itself. This is the opposite of George Whitfield's famous statement. Other men may preach the gospel better than me, but no one can preach a better gospel. If we function by thinking the way we communicate the message is more important than the message itself, if we function that way, then don't we subtly believe and even portray to others that the message we proclaim is somehow lacking and needs our help? Don't we communicate that? If we function in the way that, uh, believing that the way we communicate the message is more important than the message itself, then won't we do whatever we can to stir up people? Won't we do whatever we can to manipulate emotions and reactions? Won't we, even friends, do whatever we can to kind of brush aside the less appetizing parts of the message if how we communicate it is what makes the difference in the end? Instead of functioning that way, emptying the cross of Christ of its power, we proclaim Christ crucified faithfully, simply, boldly, and let God do the work of saving, the work that he alone is sufficient to do. One time when Jesus was in Jerusalem, it's told by the Apostle John in John chapter 12, there were a couple of Greeks who approached Jesus' disciple Philip And you may remember their request to Philip. They asked Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Every time you sit down at the Word, every time you come to church to gather with the saints, every time you see me approach this pulpit, your request should be, Sir, we wish to see Jesus more than atmosphere, more than ambiance, more than presentation, more than humor, more than amenities, more than flash. We need Jesus. The one who saves, the one mediator between God and man, the Lamb of God slain for the sins of his people, Jesus is not lacking, and we cannot improve him. Friends, The simpler we keep our ministry as a church, the more clearly we display the power of the cross. It's been said that what you win people with, you have to keep them with and win them too. If you win people with charisma and personality and gimmicks, you you win them too, personality, gimmicks, and charisma. And that's what you have to keep them with. You have to keep them with personality, charisma, and gimmicks. Listen, I've been a bit, not to bash. I don't want to bash. We, we are brothers and sisters. We rejoice where the gospel is proclaimed. But I've been to big churches where everything is impressive, but the message is hollow. I've been to small churches. The small churches aren't exempt from this. I've been to small churches that try to do all the stuff that big churches do and end up taking on too many things and end up being stretched too thin, burning out, and then sacrificing the quality of their sermons. I've been there. We offer a simpler, more excellent way. We want to win people with our great and amazing Savior. And then we want to keep people with 
our great and amazing Savior. This is the way of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. 17, sorry. Listen, this isn't an excuse to be boring, just to preach sermons as boring as possible. Proclaiming the gospel, this is the gospel of life, the gospel of power. In Jesus is life. This is what the, the, the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John so that you may believe in, in the Son of God and have life in his name. If we are bored and disinterested with this message, that's because the message has not landed on us properly. If we are bored and disinterested in this message, that's when we will go for the trappings to try to dress up this message. Y'all, don't lose your taste for the feast. Don't lose your taste for the main meal. Jesus is our feast. Be captivated, fascinated, joyful, hopeful. Prize him. Be engaged. Work hard to bring this feast to others. And be careful of distractions. Keep Christ and the cross at the center. Paul's going to expand on this more in the next section of 1 Corinthians. Lord willing, we'll consider next week. For now... Our crucified and risen Savior is the one who has brought us into the family of God. He is the one who unites us together. He is the one whose humble hearts we seek to emulate. He is the one we prize. He is the one we proclaim. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you for you. My goodness, Lord. Thank you for seeking us when we were strangers wandering from the fold of God. Thank you for saving us, for interposing your precious blood. Thank you for keeping us by your promise and by your power, working through your spirit and your word. Will we prize Jesus? Will we not think that he is lacking? But Jesus is all we need, and Jesus is ours. Would that mark the ministry at Old Oak? Would you unite us around this great Christ? Would you help us proclaim him? In his name we pray, amen.